This is the Urban Jellicle Podcast. Thanks for joining us on Urban Jellicle. My name is Mike Kelly, and I'm with a good friend who I've known for a number of years and learned quite a bit from. Dr. Brant Bosserman is the planting pastor at Trinitas Presbyterian Church, and we're really excited to have him with us as we go through the B list, uh, which is an exploration of what it's like to be an ordinary pastor at an ordinary church doing ordinary things, which is, of course, how the church has survived and thrived for these thousands of years. So we're moving away from the rock star mode, and we're talking to guys that are really doing it at a corner in a church with actual people. So thanks for joining us, Brant. Yeah, you bet, Mike. You actually, you you, you gave me way too much when you talked about doing it at a corner in a church. I'm actually not at a corner or in a church uh, in, in 2020 into 2021. So yeah, that's be- true less glorious or more inglorious, however you like to put it. It was it was metaphorical. So you're just a guy at a church. That's what I was going at. So hey, tell tell us about your uh tell us about Trinitas and uh tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, yeah. Well Trinitas, uh we're about eight years old. Our our launch service was in May of 2013. And uh What I was alluding to there at the beginning, which Mike certainly knows, but maybe a given listener might not, is that in 2020, we started worshiping outdoors in light of all the restrictions. So we actually, we meet at a boat factory or in a boat factory parking lot, if the weather's good, uh, down at the, at a marina on the Puget Sound. So, um, you know, those are the sorts of things you got to do. I mean, I think everybody's had, had to do creative things in the last year especially when you lack facilities of your own as a church planter. But you also asked about my background. So so broadly, um, I think what's unique about my background is probably um, it's a bit more academic, I think, than a lot of church planters. I was a PhD student just prior to planting in 20, uh, 20 started gathering in 2012. And it was a month after I, I gave my oral defense for my doctoral thesis. So there was no break between those two things. Um, I had been an adjunct prof at a local um, Christian uh, university for I say at least four or five years prior to planting. And then I would say maybe the other strand of my background planting with the PCA that I suppose is interesting is that I spent most of my adult life in the Acts 29 and uh, spent years at Mars Hill Church in Seattle and then another Acts 29 plant just north of Seattle. And um, so that's kind of my pedigree. I mean, being a bit more academic, um, maybe certainly a bit more, uh, you know, um, confessionally reformed in my own theological convictions. uh, And at the same time, part of a a network of churches for which church planting was always a pretty big part of their, you know, their uh, design, you could say. And we've... Brant is part of the Northwest Church Planning Network, and we've been uh, encouraged by his work and blessed by it. And also, the your Acts twenty nine background has helped us as well. And uh, the what you've seen and learned uh, in that setting has has borne fruit for us. I do want to clarify for folks who don't quite understand where Trinitas meets. When you hear Marina and Puget Sound. You're probably not thinking about the place that they are. It's uh, it's an emblem for the tenacity of that congregation and their commitment 
to the preached word and the sacraments that is really been uh, encouragement to me. So uh, forget though, let's forget about uh, let's forget about the COVID world. One of the yeah. things I want to ask uh, the friends and brothers who are part of this series is how is your church, um, how is it like you envisioned it? And how is it different than you envisioned it five years ago or, you know, eight years ago when, when you and I were first talking? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'd say it's it's as envisaged in that, um, you know, I always wanted to to have a, a church life and community and tone that is theologically deep and bold. Um, you know, being in the Northwest uh, in any season, if you're a Christian, you're automatically, you're already um, in many ways at odds with a culture, whether you like it or not. Uh, to, to put the matter simply, many things that you believe are not appreciated exactly. by the culture that, that, that exists. And so in that respect, I would say our church is, you know, to the T, it's what we had always hoped for and always expected, um, you know, uh, bold preaching, um, our, our, you know, rich, deep themes in our small group studies. We've done, you know, studies on everything from, you know, Matthew Henry's, you know, way to pray to church history to, you know, just deeper topics that I, you know, thinkers are going to find engaging um, and also just as a culture in general, I mean, I think you, our church has a lot of folks who would find themselves a witnessing impromptu to folks that they didn't know to, um, uh, you know, getting into apologetic conversations, things like that. So those things definitely characterize our community across the board, um, you know, and really everybody. I mean, we have, you know, some women who do an excellent theological podcast, um, you know, uh, Again, across the board, young people, old people, men, women, teenagers have all been involved in, you know, days when we've gone out and shared the gospel and, you know, passed out tracks and done some training on, you know, how to witness. Um, so so those things are, are what we would have anticipated um, from the beginning. I think of even things I wrote down for you, Mike. Uh, I remember exactly, you know, exactly those themes when we sat and first spoke about what the work might look like is are there things about it that are different than you anticipated yeah. or does it look different when it's happening you know yeah certainly no i i think when i think of things that are different and i don't know if i ever articulated in written form something contrary to this but i think in my mind things were contrary i would just say the number of christians uh, who are in crisis or who who are on the verge of, you know, lapsing out of Christian community or even Christian faith in any measure or degree, that's obviously a pretty big component of a church and a culture and the dynamic of a church. And yeah, going into planting, I, I, I don't think I had any idea of, you know, when you, you pull the woodwork back, you know, it, see the frame of a house, metaphorically speaking, just how many people are in um, crisis of, of some kind and in desperate need of anything from, you know, individual counseling to uh, marital counseling to, um, you know, uh, conversation about, you know, their, their own bouts with unbelief and, and lack of faith. Um, 
that that's just proven to be a, a big part of the ministry. I, I might even put it this way: before going into pastoring, if you had asked me what percentage of the mega church I was in was just hanging by a thread, I might have said something like, uh, "It's like a a twenty eighty ratio or a two to eight ratio." That you know, the two being you know the amount that's just on the edge. <laughs> there are moments where. I might even suggest that it's the exact reverse of that. Exactly. And I I do, you know, I'll just add in, you know, just this piece that I think part of that was affected by the nature of the ministries that I was, was a part of. I mean, when you're a part of a bigger, a much, much bigger sort of a church, you know, seeker sort of a thing with several thousand members as I was, um, everybody's smiling on Sunday. Everything looks like it's going well. Yeah. And, you've got all of the the stops to make for a very pleasant and enjoyable worship experience. And even um, a sort of friend community that you can have in small groups and you name it, that everyone can look like they're doing really great. But when you're in the position of uh, kind of the, well, the sole pastor of a smaller church, you're the one person who's going to hear about um, those crises from, from everybody. And that well, changes things. It uh, it can be overwhelming. Uh, one of the commitments we have as a network and as a presbytery is as you're part of both, is that we want to find uh, planters who are pastors, and we want people to come not just to build but to care. And um, I think what our listeners might, you know, unfortunately. Uh, some of them could make assumptions that such a theologically, uh, such theological heft, and that would characterize the way you do ministry from the pulpit and your studies, uh, might not have as aggressive and, or, or perhaps better word, as intentional pastoral care. But you really lean into that. One of the things that strikes me about your ministry, uh, especially considering that you are academically inclined and trained, is how much you pastor people. That's a big part of your, of your week, isn't it, Brent? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, no doubt about it. And it, it's a full gamut. I mean, obviously there, there are the, you know, marital issues, things like that. Um, you know, I'll just say the number of Christians who just struggle with the fact that they either don't have any friends or if they have friends, you know, friendships aren't all they're cracked up to be, or they, they're not delivering when they need it. I cannot tell you how many Christians have that sort of um, frustration with life in one way or another. When you're accessible as you are necessarily in a smaller church, you, you simply are more accessible. Everybody knows where, what coffee, you know, coffee shop I'm working at Monday through Friday. Uh, you, you inevitably find yourself just fielding these, even just the melancholy of, you know, how difficult the Christian life can actually be. Um, to be honest, one of the, the, the harder burdens for me in general has just been trying to pastor Christians who come from someplace, somewhere, where they had some sort of setup at church or in their Christian fellowship that had it all. Yeah. And, and just name what it meant to have it all. You know, everything from absolutely perfect, you know, music to flawless preaching to we have 85 community groups that meet at every single hour of the day, you know, seven days exactly. a week across the state. It's like these things are not reproducible. And then at the end of the day, 
sometimes these folks will even have had some position or occupied some role that I think would mark for them, you know, some depth of spiritual maturity. And then they find themselves in a world where that Christian institution, whatever it was, doesn't exist anymore. And they find out they, they can't actually do the Christian life in any circumstances, but those, that's a very, that's a challenging thing to discover about yourself. And it's doubly, you know, challenging when you're the pastor of the church that lacks all of those things they once had trying to help them, you know, through that. Exactly. You know, right? I know you, you Trinitas does not have a uh, left-handed toddlers ministry. You know, it's just not that it's just not that drilled down. Although you should you should pray one up. Uh, so when we first get into ministry, we love and I know you folks, you should check out Trinitas's website. Uh, listen to Brant and other sermons up there. Just really rich, deep, biblically challenging stuff. So so check that out. We love to preach. You know, anybody that plants a church loves to build something. Um how, but aside from the glory of God, which I know you're committed to, we're going to make that assumption. How has your I do this because changed in the last five years or has it changed in the last five years? What really motivates you for the relentless return of the Sabbath? Yes, yes. OK, so, Mike, this is probably one that I should have forewarned you about when you asked me about these questions. Um, you don't mind. I'm totally going to reverse question number three, which you just asked. Question okay. number four. I okay. think it, question number four was gonna be what one challenge Trinitas has constantly stumped you. Okay. And how does that affect your joy in the ministry? Go for and it. Then, you do what you want to do. Yes, yes, exactly. Then then we'll go on to the glory of God and you know expectations and ambitions. But bottom line, I, this is not gonna be universal to every church planter, but it absolutely will be to any church planter who wants to be anywhere near an urban area. Um, the one challenge that has constantly and consistently stumped us has been facilities. Um, it's just absolutely brutal how expensive it is. If you live in a circle that, you know, goes around Seattle 30, 35 minutes in every direction, um, it's just brutal. I, you know, to have a, a regular facility of any kind has meant, you know, for the early years of our church, meeting at really lame hours in the afternoon, even 3 p.m. at other churches, usually that they are, you know, themselves struggling and hence willing to rent their facilities. And um, so that makes for tenuous, challenging relationships sometimes. But when we finally got into the morning in 2019, it was, you know, it was just enough to meet in the morning, extremely challenging acoustically, uh, lacking in virtually any aesthetic quality, um, you know, and persisting into the present. And so the thing about that is that one issue affects just everything else. Uh, sure. You know, my, my personal feeling is that it's very difficult to hire regular staff when you have no um, <laughs> firm location for anything. Uh, it's a very idealistic vision. <laughs> it's a very in your mind sort of where is this church? What is this church when you lack those basics? And then when you, when you don't have a secretary, because <laughs> there's literally no place that that secretary would sit and do her job, but at her home. And, you know, most of, you know, the women in your church, you know, have several kids under the age of, you know, six. Um, that fundamentally just renders my job 
ridiculously expansive in terms of what I have to do. Like there's just so many things that I have to do that, um, you know, I would get, you know, advice early on. This is good advice. And so far as it's possible to do that, like, you know, don't take on too much, you know, make sure you have other people do things. And it's like, that's great advice. It's just, it do, it doesn't actually make sense if you don't actually have staff that um, you can depend on because, because honestly, a task done by a volunteer that isn't done well is worse than a task that you just do yourself because you'll end up doing that on your own anyways. And so that one challenge has had ramifications in many directions. I shouldn't say it's not like we don't have anyone else who does anything. We have really dependable people who, you know, handle music, who um, handle uh, the budget and, um, you know, the work of a treasure, stuff like that. But as far as like... <laughs> making schedules and advertising anything our church does and corresponding with the church as a whole, receiving all commentary, critical or, or a positive, you name it, all of that's in my inbox. Um, yes. So administratively, it's like I am my own secretary. Um, also means I have no one to blame it on when there's a typo. Um, <laughs> that one issue radically affects every everything else and honestly we're still stumped by it it's not there's no simple answer to it you know could we purchase office space yes but it would directly compete then with you know what our potential um meeting space budget would be and i mean so yeah that's it's just it's been a burden it's it's probably not my where i'm strongest in the ministry you know solving things like that but that one challenge is consistently just that's uh, yeah. it's but, relentless and um y your temperament and your gifts as a well i know you personally but also generally speaking as pastors um those are all left-handed gifts for us you know those are things that we, we need to really be intentional about and in many ways well certainly act six says they're maybe not the most important things that we do but they still need to be done um yeah. What what has that done to your heart as a pastor and a minister? Uh, I imagine it's frustrating. Uh, how how has God used that to shape, you know, your spirit towards your people and towards Him and towards your job? Well, you know, in some ways, it, it creates a little bit of solidarity with with people that uh, I don't I don't know when I was in a a, a more mega church sort of context if you would have that same level of sense that your pastor knows what you're going through. But, uh, you know, I mean, the reality is, is I have a job that is in many, many ways, just like the job that a congregant may have in hate. That's great. Um, in one way or another. Um, and so in that sense, like, I can, I can only, you know, feel so, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, bad for myself, because at the end of the day, this is what it means to work, to do a whole lot of stuff you know, you just, you really don't love and you're, you're stuck doing and, and for practical purposes, maybe you actually just don't see an end to, um, I can only imagine countless members of our congregations feel that way about their job. I, I say only imagine, I know that's the case with my congregation, but I mean, with every congregation, we have congregants who say that. And I also just think, you know, my dad, he, he worked his whole life in a blue collar capacity in the grocery industry still works in it today. And um, 
my dad was ambitious to um, study the word with me and my siblings. And uh, I often, you know, find myself in the midst of my work saying, you know, am I working as hard as my dad worked for, for something that was lacking in kind of a direct kingdom influence, you know, in the way that being a minister is. And um, that, that brings me down, brings me back to, you know, kind of a reality when I'm frustrated. And it really even brings me back to reality when it's like, there are guys that I disagree with, you know, on a presbytery level or, you know, and my dad has had so many guys who just so many bosses who are just downright cruel. And you're like, that's just what it is to work with people, to have, you know, exactly. fundamental disagreements. And well, I've, uh, I've met your dad on a number of occasions, and uh, he is a godly man who's lived well in the Lord. And you are, and your mom too, you're, you're the fruit of, of their life and ministry. And so in that respect, so is Trinitas. And uh, they've blessed a lot of people. I know he's an elder at Trinitas as well. So, uh I you know, I'm also glad to hear you talk about job in the weekly emails that I send out called Sunday Meds, Meditations for Pastors. If you read those closely, you'll you'll find that almost every week I refer to your job. Because I think that ministers need to see this for what it really is. It's work. It's not always uh, those things that it can be sometime, which are spectacular and enriching and deep and contemplative a lot of time it's just work, just getting, getting the work done. So as you're in it now in this context, and you are doing a good job, by the way, from everyone's estimations, um, how do you measure contentment? And then we're going to ask about how you measure success. Those are two different things. Uh, usually we hope that you don't need to feel successful to be content, but yeah. where do you find contentment? How does that work in you? Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's hard to come by. Yes, no, interesting. See, I took the question, how would you measure contentment as just like, give me a measurement of your contentment. But the question of how you would measure it is, uh, yeah. is, is, is a more detailed question. So yeah. uh, first, of, I suppose I'll pass on the general measurement. I guess I would <laughs> say, you know, most of the time I'd say pretty solid eight or nine, I guess. On the oh, scale. good. Yeah. Um, okay. I think the more helpful way to think about it probably, though, is like, um, rather than giving one, you know, average, like, what, you know, what are the lows like? And what are what what's normal, you know, normal, I would say, I'm, I'm generally around an eight or a nine, and, you know, maybe a 10, if you know, uh, it, those those high points in the ministry, you know, someone coming to a new profession of faith, or um, someone having a bold witness with their family, um, when it's really hard to, or, um, you know, someone settling down for, uh, for for years, maybe when they had you know a real lofty vision of what they were supposed to do, and actually took the advice that they need to settle into something um, because they have present you know necessities. That I mean, those are all highs you know in in the ministry when you can observe that and see that, and you've got to be thoughtful about it. So how we measure contentment, I think, has to involve um, fundamentally you've got to be a reflective person to see things that. Um, don't necessarily smack you right upside the head. Um, I think it kind of loans itself to the danger of, of simply uh, attempting to evaluate the success of your ministry and do something just very tangible. Do, do we have a new building? 
do we have, um, you know, what are the numbers of attendees? Exactly. Those are the very, very tangible, I might even say at some point, simplistic ways of measuring success in ministry, not that they're irrelevant. Um, They're not irrelevant, but they are kind of cheater shortcuts, really. You know, you can. Yeah, that's right. And 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 honestly, you know, anyone who's involved in marketing has figured out that you can manage those things. You know, with a certain mm-hmm. amount of prerequisites and materials, um, almost anyone can produce and you know immediate results with the right combination. That's where Charles Finney wasn't wrong. Finney wasn't mistaken when he said that you can manufacture a revival. Yeah. Uh, Arguably, he he figured that out before American marketing figured that out. It's just a question of whether you've actually you know revived anyone in in a um, in the regeneration sort of sense that the, the Bible talks about. Well, but, that's what that's what struck me. I did change up that question a little bit. So good, yeah. uh, good on you for recovering well. Mm-hmm. But what what struck me about your answer? is that it's, it, they, it went right to the heart of what we're trying to get at in this B-List series, which is what's satisfying and sustainable and brings joy in ministry. And everything you mentioned, Brandt, was, uh, was not really that sexy unless, unless you care about the people and the family that are right across the table from you. And that's that stuff is the engine that has driven the church for thousands of years, right? And um, that's what ordinary ministry is. And uh, why do you think? And I'm asking you to analyze abstract pastors. You know, it's hard to do. But why do you think it's so hard for us to find like an eight or a ten contentment in a moment like that when a guy says, "Yeah, I got to settle down and maybe do something." I I'm not really stoked about because I got to care for my family. Thanks, Pastor. Like, what keeps us from drinking that in? Yeah. No, I mean, I think some of it's really just very simple uh, and things I can relate to, very practical human things. A guy saying that does not increase your church budget. And in increasing your church budget uh, is how you keep your job. Um, <laughs> yeah. so that's, that's the first thing. I mean, you know, there's just, there's worldly security to be had and all those things you could mark out as um, the sorts of measures that I think pastors will fall into as a ditch, you know, as, as, as evaluating the, you know, what matters for their ministry. So worldly security, I, I, I struggle with that without a doubt. Um, you know, I'm, you know, we talk about the facility issue mentioned earlier than staff and you name it, you know, yeah, I, I am somewhat reluctant to hire more staff knowing that until and unless we're at a place where we can literally spend upwards of 10 grand a month for a lease. We won't be leasing anywhere. That's, that's just a heavy burden to go, you know, for me, I've got to, I'm constantly calibrating. Well, you know, if we do X, we can't have Y. And don't get me wrong. I don't mean to downplay that as a significant concern. You know, for me, it's a significant (laughs) concern because I want to see my ministry exist beyond, you know, the generation that I'm pastoring in. Exactly. And that requires stuff like that. So I think that's one reason why it's 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 quite a bit easier and more natural to celebrate these things like, hey, we just, the numbers are way up. You know, that's probably means that, you know, at some point the budget is way up. Obviously the less, you know, um, the, the less flowery reasons to have, you know, a, a bad disposition, not that there's ever a good reason for it, it's just, 
it's just fame. I mean, it's just that simple, you know, men trying to make a name for themselves. It's Genesis 11. Let's build something big and make a name for ourselves. Uh, whether that's the tower of Babel or your ministry, um, that just, it's something the Lord very evidently does not care about the way that we do. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, the Lord is talking to seven of the original uh, churches in Asia Minor in Revelation two through three and shamelessly telling them, you know, he'll remove their lampstand. He, he doesn't, he doesn't need them the way they need him as, as savior. And if at the end of the day, it means a church not existing anymore, that was really awesome and had historic, you know, traction and all of these things and went back to the apostles. It's just, there's a fearlessness on the part of Christ to say he does not care about. Exactly. That. So I think that that could be so freeing if we can just get our hearts around that as pastors to understand that we're going to be measured and live in a space that's much different. Yeah. Faithfulness uh, is going to be glorified in the end. And um, Jesus is going to do whatever he wants with Trinitas and Brant Bosserman and Mike Kelly and everyone else that, that, uh, that wants to serve him. So once we're there um, in an ordinary church doing ordinary things as an ordinary pastor that no one's going to write a biography about, uh, what, what does uh, make you feel respected and appreciated? Which, of course, it's not bad to feel that way. You know, you should you should be honored among your people, and it's okay to be encouraged by your work. So, like, what's that look like and feel like for for you? Yes. So, you know, caveat here: you're jumping forward to the list of four questions that you gave me beforehand, twenty minutes before that I didn't answer. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'm kind of going off the cuff here. You know, um, let me think here. Well, we're going to cut that part out of the podcast, so you don't. You know, take <laughs> that's me. the most important part of the podcast that whoever's on it next knows <laughs> what they're getting into. It. Um, that honestly, that's a really hard question for me to ask, Mike, as to what makes me feel respected. Um, hmm. Uh, I, it's really something I, I would like to give more consideration to. I mean, I, sure. I mean, in general, I can say what it's, it's always really nice when someone appreciates your preaching or, um, you know, especially when someone takes your counsel, yeah. uh, you know, uh, let's just, let's go with that for the time being. Um, all right. That's cool. And by the way, um, in all sincerity, uh, we can take anything out of the middle of this thing we want, by the sure. way. So sure. <laughs> including this comment right here. So that's not, not a problem. Problem. that that is not a problem. Yeah. Um, but as far as feeling respected, um, you know, let me couch the answer in terms of um I always tell people when they come to me for pastoral counseling that um just to make it clear, you know, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them counsel. That means very I'm gonna give them concrete advice. If what they had in mind when they heard about counseling or getting counseling was anything close to them laying down on a couch and me sitting in a chair with a clipboard, you know, working through their, you know, childhood trauma or something like that, nothing like that will occur. Like I will obviously make some reconnaissance of what's going on, but like historically what counsel has meant is, is to give advice and not simply to work through one's own feelings or to help them to discover maybe their own course ahead. That's it's not to say any of that is doesn't have its place. I absolutely, 
that's just not what I do as a minister. Yeah. It can't be what I do, you know, given powers. And so all that said, yeah, when, when people, sometimes the counsel that you give is, is very, very straightforward biblical stuff. It's not, it's not a contrived, you know, inference from the scriptures, but yeah, when a congregant, um, does what the Bible says as it has exactly. been close to them, you know, in conversation with me. Yes, that definitely does make me feel respected. Uh, to be very honest, like uh, often that's not the case. That's not how things play out. Uh, people are often looking for any answer but what the Bible says, and they might even be coming to you for counsel because they already know that answer and they think maybe you have some creative solution how it cannot be that answer and that's maybe what theologians do that's what pastors do they somehow but, you know yeah, that's it. what a lot of us and that's what a lot of us want i've actually been told on more than one occasion when someone expressed some problem or concern with me that they didn't really want to talk to me about it because i knew more about the bible on that subject than they did oh yes yes i was like, yeah. I was like all right i kind of thought that was a good thing until yeah, this conversation no. <laughs> but what a, one of the reasons I think asking you a question like, what makes you feel respected? And this is from my, man, what are we working on? 10 years almost now we've known each other? <clears throat> yeah. Close. yeah. I don't think that's really a mental space you spend a lot of time in. I don't think you, I don't perceive you as a, somebody who expects to be respected in that way. You should be treated cordially, but it's not your love language. You just want to do the right thing. And I think that's probably, um, I think that's probably an accurate characterization of, of you. So I appreciate that. I mean, obviously it is something that pops up, but you are right. <laughs> There's something so inglorious about church planting that man, if, if you go into it with like some really robust sense of how people ought to be respecting you, I'm telling you, man, I, I, there are not a lot of things I throw out there on the front end. Like this is not the job for you, but like, exactly. You just, it's, it's too inglorious. You're too accessible. You're too, all of those things diminish what you think of as kind of the pop culture versions of respect. Like maybe people are like in awe to talk to you or afraid to like conduct themselves a certain way around you. I think when you are in some sort of megachurch setting where you can be separated from the people by like 13 layers of staff, that when someone finally does meet with you, it's you know like talking to the Dalai Lama or something. Yeah, you can probably carry on with this deep vision of you know self-respect that needs to be reinforced by everyone around you. But it just if you yeah. go into church planting like that, you're just I just think it's a, a it's a recipe for for death. It uh, and either slow and painful or quick and painful, but you're going to, you're going to die. So Paul Koistra is a leader in our denomination. Uh, he said once at one of our national meetings, our problem is that we're a bunch of nobodies trying to become somebody while we follow a somebody who became nobody. And Mike, for what it's worth, I've quoted that many times in you, original <laughs> author. So Thank oh, you. sweet. Sweet. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take the part about Koistra out of this podcast. Yeah. Then. So, Hey, so we're going to land with this question. Um, let me frame it in a way that is uh, clear that it's not meant to, uh, you know, it's, it's not meant to assume that you have the most singularly awesome church in North America, but it's really meant to give you an opportunity to boast in the Lord about your people 
And here's here's the question. If there was one characteristic of Trinitas that you could, through prayer, import to every church you know in North America, just like, here's a gift from us, uh, it will enrich you. Um, what would that be? I actually did get a chance to look at this one beforehand. Mike, yeah, no, I, it's simple. I Grit. That's all there is to it. Just grit. Like, you know, we, we alluded at the beginning, you know, when we were talking about 2020, um, obviously being a year that has shaken a lot of ministries, churches, many churches have gone under. I know a couple, um, but we spent so many years as a church plant, you know, what, six, six years, seven years up to that point of just slogging out the ministry. I mean, it's the only way to put it. It's like, when we were, you know, looking for youth or uh, youth discipleship, which is like a four to six, um, I'm going to say catechism class, which is a four to six year old, you know, class, you know, volunteers. It's like, it, it wasn't the, the friendly sort of solicitation of, hey, talk to so-and-so after the service. It's like, we're passing around a clipboard and it's going to be filled out before the end of this service. And it's like, you know, that that's how things went for six or seven years. Like, we meet at bizarre hours. I always like to tell people, like, we never had an, any intention of being this Sabbatarian. But when you're forced to meet the middle of the day on Sunday, you really can't do anything on Sunday. Like, you're meeting at 3 p.m., you're just stuck. And it's like, well, I guess, guess that's what we're doing. And the Lord providentially ordained that to take place in, like, the only two to three year stretch in Seattle's existence that our football team, you know, was like a genuine contender in the Super Bowl. Like we were, we were meeting during all of that. And so when it finally came around to 2020 and it was like the only place we could meet was outdoors in a parking lot down by the Puget Sound. And we said to the group, that's what we're going to do. Everybody was just like, okay, we'll see you there. And that's how it's been. I mean, and we've remarkably really grown a ton in 2020. It's probably been, uh, by the, the measures that we denounced earlier, our best year in ministry. Um, you know, we've just, we've had a lot of new attenders. We've had a lot of new members. We've had a lot of new professions of faith. We've had just a really, really rich year. And um, I just... I guess if I had to wager a bet as to what lies ahead for American Christianity, you know, in the next, in the coming decades, I just think it strikes me that things are going to get a lot harder. And this comes from like a tried and true post-millennialist who has a whole lot of optimism about where the church <laughs> is going um, in the, the long term. Um, yeah. I mean, I just think it's going to be a lot harder to maintain our profession of faith Um just in the face of all sorts of things that are trending culturally, I just think it's going to be a lot harder to have a really cool Christian church. I think it's going to be a lot less cool to be Christian, yeah. a lot less easy. And just the grit to be like, no, I, I factored that in to my expectations for the future. And I'm going to worship um, in the face of it all. And I'm going to believe that that really makes a powerful and radical difference in the world in spite of what I can see. I'm just going to keep doing that. That's I'm not going to leave my church when, you know, it's <laughs> when it, it, when it, it suffers, you know, in some overt fashion, I'm going to suffer with my church and um, I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. I, 
I think Christianity could use a lot more of that. Well, that's, I agree that it can. I also agree that that's a characteristic of the people at Trinitas. Uh, their faithful tenacity uh, and resolve uh, has encouraged everyone in our community of churches. And this whole B-list thing, which is really intended to mock the idea that there's an A-list of pastors, uh, it is about the reality that I think the lane is going to get more narrow and cool is going to be harder. And those are probably uh, both going to strengthen the church as well as winnow it a little bit. So uh, we're proud of the work that you're doing down there. We're very, very thankful for your uh, steadfastness in ministry, and we couldn't uh, we couldn't do justice to that without uh, giving thanks for Heather, your wife, who has been with you from from the very beginning and in everything and in every way. So we're thankful for you guys, Brent. We appreciate your time, and thanks for engaging this with us, brother. You bet. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thank you for listening. Urbangelical is a ministry of the Northwest Church Planting Network in Seattle, Washington. If you would like to be notified of future podcasts, please visit nwcpnetwork.com and click podcasts.